$50 to make and sold for $800. So, um, so these are two individuals that, um, you know, we know that people die every day. No one is immune to death. Um, the death rate among humans is still 100%. However, the rate of people dying at their own hands is on an upward scale at an alarming rate, surpassing death by car accidents and overdoses with opioids. Someone dies of suicide every 40 seconds. The suicide rate has increased across our country twofold. In some states, such as the state of Ohio, it has gone up 30%. Unless you think that the suicide rate is only going up among those who are older, you would be mistaken. Uh, that rate is primarily among children from 8 years old to about age 16 and even among military personnel uh, who have come off, uh, you know, from tours of duty and uh, no longer can seem to handle life. What makes Miss Spade and Mr. Bourdain's death so puzzling is that they seem to have the world by the tail, right? They seem to have lived to achieve the American dream. They had wealth, they had fame, they had success in their areas of endeavor. Uh, they seemed to be on the top of their game at the time of their suicide. And most of the world would have traded their lives for theirs in a heartbeat. Man, I, I, I'd love to live a life like that. I'd love to just try that one time, to be that famous and that wealthy and that successful where everybody just kind of like, you know, looks at you in awe of all that you have and all that you possess. But that's the problem. We often look at the outside of people and failing to understand what's going on inside because the two are not one and the same. And so most of us um, would have traded perhaps, but now tragically they are lifeless. And although I can't tell you why they committed suicide, I can certainly look at factors uh, that are a part of our society that would contribute to such a decision in a person's life. First of all, um, the life Americans long for just doesn't work. It just doesn't work. We value success more than significance. And we measure success by a lot of different things. Primarily by how famous am I? How much money do I have? How much money do I have in my bank account? How many people do... Follow me on Facebook. How many people like me? How many people respond positively? How many followers on Instagram? And so we have, we have kind of drawn this circle around ourselves. And the more that self is, is um, focused upon, like standing myself in the middle of this table, the more I focus on self, the, the tighter the circle becomes. And for someone to take their own life means they have reached a point of hopelessness. In their eyes, there is just like no hope. Nothing can be different. Nothing will change. There's just nothing to live for. You know, Anthony Bourdain uh, talked about the possibility of committing suicide before until his daughter was born, and she's now 11 years old. And apparently, because when she was born, he said uh, she's worth living for. Apparently now that wasn't enough. And so there was that point of hopelessness in which he takes his own life. Um, Wow, when you, when you get to hopelessness, eventually you feel like you have nothing and you are nothing. And why continue on? 
The second thing that I see, and there are many patterns, but I'm just going to throw out a few of them, is mental illness. That is, by and large, in our society, has been swept under the rug. And uh, we, we don't know how to deal with it. We don't know even how to handle it, even in churches. We, we kind of, uh, if someone professes having struggling with a mental illness, we kind of like, oh, we, we, you know, we like shove them off to the side. The fact of the matter is, people are broken mentally. Now, there can be many factors that lead to that. There can be chemical imbalances in the brain that, yes, medications may help to balance that out. And I'm not against medication at all. Sometimes people need that, that extra help, that extra boost. But if we don't get to the root cause of things, then we are simply putting a Band-Aid on something that is a much deeper problem. And I think mental illness goes much deeper uh, than we ever expected or anticipated. And certainly that is bearing itself out in the academic field of psychology and psychiatry in our day and time. Another aspect is that we, we live in a dark spiritual realm that is, uh, by and large, not recognized and not fought against. It is amazing that in the first century, Jesus dealt a lot with the demonic issues in people's lives. Even the disciples dealt a lot with demonic issues in people's lives. But if you were to say to somebody, listen, I think that there might be a demonic source at the root of your problem. People will laugh at you. They'll look at you like you're nuts. And immediately they go to Hollywood, you know, the exorcist and, you know, spinning heads and vomiting and all those kinds of weird things. Why do we suppose that after Jesus ascended back into heaven, and why do we suppose that after the disciples died and left this earth, do we think that Satan all of a sudden packed up his bags and said, well, uh, you know, uh, these Christians, well, they're just too much for us. We got to get out of here. We got to find another place to locate ourselves. We got to find somewhere else we can wreak havoc upon somebody's life. Absolutely not. Just as the demonic was very much instrumental in the realm of humanity in Jesus' day and time, it is still that way in our day and time. We just fail to acknowledge it. But the Bible does not fail to acknowledge it and says that we ought to, we ought to recognize it. But oftentimes we're unwilling to recognize it and we're unwilling to be equipped in order to engage in it. Darkness, desperation, death, destruction are all around us. And Jesus said of Satan, he is the one who has come to steal and to kill and to destroy. And Jesus, though, came to bring light and love and life and liberty and Jesus said he came to destroy the works of the devil, right? The works of the devil. That, my friend, is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the sozo of God. It is the power to save and to heal and to deliver. And that sozo has not changed. The message has not changed. We may have cut out part of the message. We may have chosen to focus only on one aspect of the message, but the fact of the matter is all three aspects need to come to bear upon the life of a human being because we need healing spiritually and in our soul and in our bodies. And so God came to address the entire package of humanity. Our mess mission is to take the message by any means possible to as many people as possible because it is good news. And if you don't get that in your heart, if that is not a passion of your soul, 
you will sit back and watch the world pass you by when the fact is God says, I have equipped you with the Holy Spirit, the power source that is needed in order to bring sozo to bear on the hearts and lives of humanity. Now keep in mind that you may not see any receptivity when you talk with a person. You may not see any change in their life immediately. Uh, they, you, know, you may not see a turning of someone's life at the end of a given conversation, but do not give up hope. Do not get discouraged. Because listen, when you bring the message to somebody about the good news of the gospel, they may respond in one of three ways. They, and we'll find this later on in the book of Acts. They may be, give you the red light, like, you know what, I'm just not interested. They may give you the yellow light that, you know what, I'm kind of intrigued, I'm, I'm curious, but I'm not many, ready to make that kind of commitment or that step. Or you get people in the green light and they, they make that profession of faith in their life. But please do not get discouraged as a follower of Christ, as a dispenser of the message, because you never know if you're there sharing the message, living the message, how maybe a week, a month, it might be years later that somebody comes to faith in Christ because you were faithful in delivering the message, both through words and through deeds. I think I've shared with you before, when I was in college, I worked at a grocery store, and I was working for a butcher, and I, I cleaned the butcher shop, and sometimes I would help wrap the meat and, and different things like that. My, the butcher's name was Harvey, and, and Harvey, was he, was he was a religious man, but he wasn't a saved man. He thought religion was all about working your way to God and earning God's favor and making sure you do the right things in the right way. And So for four years, I talked to him. As God gave me an opportunity, four years, I talked to him about Jesus. And for four years, I tried to live the gospel out in front of him, as well as the boss that I worked for and the guy who led, you know, overdid produce and the cashiers. And so uh, Harvey never made a decision for Christ. He, He never, just would never cross that line of faith. And so while I was in seminary, I ran across a person that I'd known in college, and they, they let me know that, hey, uh, we just want you to know that Harvey gave his life to Jesus and is now a born-again Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ, and he can't shut up about it. Now, the man talked excessively anyways. I can only imagine now what it was like when he's talking about Jesus to everybody, okay? So uh, if you didn't want to hear about Jesus, you probably didn't want to go in the store. So as we stay in step with the Spirit, the Spirit of God invites us to participate in these gospel appointments with other people, as we talked about last week. So you need to be prepared. The Bible says that you ought to be ready to share the hope that is within you. So uh, let me encourage you, look, uh, prepare yourself. Get a Bible. Mark the Bible. You don't have to memorize this stuff. I gave you a three-circle conversation, something you can use. It's in this little pamphlet right here. If nothing else, they're right here at the front. Pick one up after church. You can sit down and just go through this pamphlet with people. It's got all the scriptures. You don't have to memorize anything. You're just unleashing the Word of God and allowing the Spirit of God to take the Word of God in order to work a miracle in somebody's life. All right? So, or take your Bible, mark it, have it with you. I don't care. Memorize it. That would be the best thing if you memorize it so you never know when the opportunity is going to arise. So if God brings somebody across your, your pathway, man, take advantage of it. Or maybe God says, hey, I want you to go speak to this person. Set up an appointment with them. Sit down for the sole purpose that you're going to tell them about Jesus. 
Because when the Spirit prompts, I know you're thinking, well, you don't understand, Greg. This person that God is prompting my heart to talk to, they are nuts. I mean, they're just nuts. They are not going to respond to the gospel. They're way too gone. They, they, they don't like Christians. They, they don't even like God. You just don't understand. They're just not interested in God. <laughs> really? Well, that kind of characterizes Paul's life, right? He had no interest in God. He hated Christians. He, he, he wasn't interested in having a relationship with Jesus. Now, he knew God. He was a religious person, obviously. He was a Pharisee. But he just didn't really have any interest. So it would have been easy for any of the believers, and the early believers, to say, look, we're not taking the gospel to this guy because, you know what, he's too far gone. It's just not going to do any good. It's going to be like talking to that wall back there. Now, sometimes I had that suspicion about people, and God one day woke me up in my... The, Let's try, I'm trying, the second church that I pastored. And so I had a family in my church who had a son who was a part of a motorcycle gang. But these were like the Hell's Angels kind of gang. This wasn't your average motorcycle group that goes out there and rides. And so their son was killed. Uh, and uh, they asked me to do his funeral. And I thought, Lord, why in the world do you want me to do this funeral? This, this kid, uh, what am I going to say? And who's going to be out there in the audience, and they're too far gone, and they're never going to respond to the gospel, and on and on, you know. And God just like, you know, as he does with you sometimes, he just kind of picks you up and slaps you across the face a few times. And I wake up here, listen, uh, here's what I want you to do, and here's what I want you to say. So I, I'll never forget in the funeral home, uh, the night of the viewing, uh, the, you know, the caskets open, people are passing by, and they were walking by, and they all had their beer cans, whiskey bottles. They were throwing them inside the casket and say, hey, brother, we'll see you in hell. We'll be partying together and all this. This went on for the whole evening. I mean, that place was just packed with uh, motorcycle riders from all Now, you know, I'm a motorcycle rider. I love motorcycles, ride motorcycles. And so I, I felt a little bit at home, but, but uh, you know, I'd not been around this kind of crowd before. And so the day of the funeral, uh, I stood up to share, um, and I thought, you know what? God just kept saying, share the gospel, just share the gospel, just share the gospel. And I said, Lord, they're not going to listen, they're not going to listen, but I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. And so I did. And as I was speaking in the funeral, during the funeral, um, you could have heard a pin drop. And at the end of that service, I gave an invitation for people to accept Christ. The young man who was laying in the casket, his wife was the first one. And then others came. In fact, she ended up being a member of our church and, and attending as well as some of the other guys. Here's what I want you to see. This is my whole key concept for today is this. Do not ever write anyone off under no circumstances as being beyond the reach of the gospel. Don't ever write anyone off. Do not base it on what they look like. Don't base it on their past. Don't base it on their present. Don't base it upon what you think their future is going to be like and what it's going to look like. Do not, un and under any circumstance with any person, put them in the category that they are beyond the realm of the reach of the gospel of Christ because that simply is not true. And so when we come to the Apostle Saul, or Apostle Paul, I'm going to, I'm going to just stick with Saul. He'll late, later will be named Paul. But at this point, he is Saul. You'll notice what it says in verse 1 again. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. 
And he went to the high priest and asked for letters to the synagogues of Damascus so that he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Notice when he's still breathing. That's like, Paul was like a, Saul was like a fire-breathing dragon. He could not wait to get his hands on these, these would-be followers of Jesus and imprison them and have them put to death if necessary. Listen, when you go out to your family or you're talking to people you work with or interacting with in your neighborhood, you may have to believe in, in the bedrock of your being that, listen, this person I'm dealing with is not beyond the reach of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You say, but Greg, you don't understand. I've been talking to this person for years. I don't seem to be getting anywhere. It doesn't seem to be making any, any difference in their life. It just doesn't seem to be penetrating one iota. You never know what God is doing inside the heart and the life of an individual as you are planting the seeds of the the gospel because God says his word will not return void. Now there are a lot of things that were going against the uh, Saul at this moment in his life. For example, uh, he came from a very wealthy family, right? So his family were Roman citizens, which means you had to purchase that and it did not come cheap. You remember what Jesus said about those who are rich? He said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to go into heaven. What, why, why is that? Because people have a tendency who are very wealthy to rely upon their wealth. I don't need God. I've got all the security I need. Things are going life, uh, well in life for me. And you can allow your wealth to insulate you from a sense of genuine need for the Lord Jesus in your life. So he had that going against him. And certainly uh, we know that Saul was a highly educated man. Acts 5, remember he was educated by Gamaliel, who was one of the uh, renowned scholars of his day and time. So when you get to Acts 17, for example, and, and Saul and Paul at this time is, is talking with those who are uh, unbelievers in the, you know, in the Greek culture, he starts quoting uh, Greek scholars and some of their poetry. And that'd be like me asking you out to dinner and you sit down and start telling me all about, you know, start quoting Shakespeare to me. I think you're a pretty bright person, right? Uh, I don't know any Shakespeare, so I would think you're a pretty intelligent individual. And so, uh, again, he was educated. And the Bible says that even Paul wrote that, the, that knowledge has a tendency to puff up, right? I'm so smart, I don't need anybody, I can figure this out on my own. And then Saul was religious. In Philippians 3, he called himself the Pharisee of the Pharisees, meaning that if you had a pro team of religious leaders, he's your guy, right? Uh, he is your LeBron James or whoever it is, you're, 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 okay, so maybe not LeBron, all right, that might not be a good one. But obviously, Paul would be recognized as one of the lead players on the team, all right, so Religiously, there were over, you know, the, the law was to be followed, and there were over 600 additional uh, laws that were put in place. And as a Pharisee, he would be very astute at keeping all of those things. And so, when you have laws and rules, it is a means of measuring your righteousness about how good you are and how well you are doing. And it has a tendency to either, you know, Puff you up with pride, like, man, I'm really doing well at following all God's rules, or it may bring great shame into your life because I, I didn't do so well today. But, you know, he says, I'm a Pharisee among the Pharisees. In other words, man, I can puff out my chest. I can walk in pride because I'm keeping this religious thing just like, you know, I'm dotting every T or every I and crossing every T. And, and man, I, when I compare myself to somebody else, there is no one like me. And yet... Uh, <laughs> We love that, right? We, we like to have ways to keep track of our 
our spirituality. Here's the, here's the last one. He, was, he hated Christians. Right? We read this right. He still hates Christians. Why in the world would he want to be a follower of Jesus when he hated the followers of Jesus? Because remember back in chapter 7 when they were picking up stones to stone Stephen? Uh, Saul was there. In fact, he didn't want those who were throwing stones to be encumbered by their clothing. So he said, hey, take your coats off. I'll hold your coats while you make sure you do a really good job of, of taking this guy out. And he approved and he applauded the fact that Stephen was martyred. And so notice he's still breathing. He's like a war horse who sniffs the wind and can smell the war and gets all excited about it. And uh, he's a fire-breathing Pharisee on the hot trail. And he thinks it's his life calling to put a stop to this movement called the way. Now, early Christians were called the way based probably on Jesus when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life in John 14.6. And so Saul was you know, stopping what he perceived to be a false doctrine, a heretical movement. He wanted to make sure that Judaism remained pure. If you want a, a modern-day version of this, it would be ISIS. They believe that Islam has been corrupted, uh, that it has been marred, and so they believe they need to bring it back to its true form and true purity of Sharia law, and so they will go to any lengths necessary in order for that to take place and for that to happen. This is kind of what Saul was like. He was like the ISIS of his day and time, believing that he was following the commands of God. And so he goes to the high priest Caiaphas, who, remember, is the mastermind behind the crucifixion of Jesus himself, and he asks for letters to the synagogues of Damascus. In other words, he's saying, look, I'm taking my show on the road. We're going to have a good time. And Caiaphas, in his capacity as president of the Sanhedrin, was viewed by the Romans as the head of the Jewish state. That means that he had the authority over Jewish internal matters. So in giving those letters to Saul, he's giving him the, the authority to do what it is he desires to do without any repercussions. Why Damascus? Because Damascus is where there is a huge Jewish population. Flavia Josephus, who was a historical writer who was Jewish, but he worked for the Romans, said at one time in Damascus, 10,000 Jews were put to death, which means there was a huge Jewish population, probably at least 40 synagogues. And what is, what is Saul wanting to do? He's wanting to go to these places. He's figuring, look, if there's that large of a Jewish population, I got to get off and, and head off and inter intercept this, this movement of God called the way. And if I find anyone there that even has an inkling towards the way, they're, they're, they're coming back to Jerusalem with me, and they're going to be in prison, and we're going to have fun. You see, Saul couldn't figure out for the life of him why a bunch of Jews would want to worship a crucified Messiah. Remember, he is a stickler of the law, and the law says anyone who dies on a tree has been cursed by God. So why in the world would you want to, want to worship this, this dead Messiah who was cursed of God? And so my point is this, is that we have Saul who has wealth and education and religion and hatred for Christians going against him. If there's anyone you would ever think, man, this guy is too far gone. He is never going to bow to Jesus. It would have been him. But God had other plans, didn't he? 
He had other plans. So here's why we should never write off anyone under any circumstance as being too far gone, as being beyond the reach of the gospel. First of all, God has always been pursuing them. God has always been pursuing them. Now, if you look at these verses, in verse uh, 3 of chapter 9, it says, um, as Saul is, you know, he's making his plans, it says, as he neared Damascus, suddenly, you want to underline that word, suddenly, that is, that is how it happens oftentimes when people are seemingly heading the opposite way of God, and God has been pursuing them, whether they realize it or not, and all of a sudden, God gets hold of their heart, and suddenly, they understand that God has just intercepted them. You see, for some of you, it might be that you had a child who was wayward, who was a prodigal, and it was breaking your heart, and you prayed, and you prayed, and you prayed, thinking, you know, Lord, are they far t- too far gone? Are they ever going to turn back? Is anything ever going to be different in their life? And all of a sudden, suddenly, God just like, boom, into their heart, into their life, and, and just brings this miracle transformation because they've had an encounter with Jesus. And for some of you, it might be a spouse who was far down the road of addiction. It doesn't look like they're ever coming back. And then suddenly, God does a work. Or maybe it's a, a, a sister or a sibling that is just antagonistic against the faith. You know, they've made fun of you. They've kind of ridiculed you for being a believer in your family. And then all of a sudden, you know, God just, all of a sudden, bam, he just inter- intervenes in their life. And so suddenly, notice what suddenly he says, that a light from heaven flashed around him. And he heard this voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are are you persecuting me? And it's like, who are you? (laughs) I mean, and Saul, all of a sudden, you know, he's he's falling to the ground. This big, tough, wealthy, religious Saul. And he is like just arrested by God because God has been pursuing him. He says, uh, what do you think Jesus is going to say to him? Notice he tenderly says, Saul. He uses his first name. Why are you persecuting me? Of course, Saul's like, "Uh, I didn't even know you existed until a minute ago. Um, Not really persecuting you. Now I really have anything to do with you. But now notice how Jesus makes the correlation here. Um, he's thinking this whole thing was made up. And what are you talking about persecuting you? And I'm just hammering these former Jews have gone, you know, off the off their rocker. And all of a sudden, the Lord is a gentleman. And he nudges Saul, but he nudges him pretty hard, doesn't he? Like he flattens him out. Listen to me. Sometimes when people, you think people are far away from God, sometimes God's process of bringing them to himself will be gentle nudges. And sometimes it will be God just literally taking, taking the rug right out from a person and, and they falling flat on their face in order to get their attention. You know, for me, it was a lot of gentle nudges. For my mother, it was like God just pulling the rug out from under her in order to get her attention. Um, but needless to say, Uh, God got her attention, he got my attention, he got Saul's attention. He says, why are you persecuting me? And uh, so please make that correlation. If you attack, Jesus is saying, you attack one of mine, you're attacking me. You're persecuting one of mine, you're you're persecuting one of me. 
you're persecuting me. So the con, you know, if you um, contrast that, conversely, Matthew 25, what did Jesus say? If you do something good towards somebody else, you're doing good towards me. Now, here's why I, I, I bring this about is because sometimes people say things like, well, you know, uh, I love Jesus, but I just don't love the church. You can't separate the two. The church is his bride. That'd be like you saying to me, you know what, Greg, I kind of like you, and uh, I'd like to invite you over for dinner, but you're going to have to leave that skank wife of your behind because I don't like her. Yeah, that's the kind of emotion you ought to have. And that's exactly what Jesus is telling Saul. This is how I view it. So when people say to me, well, I love, the ch- you know, I love the Lord, but I just don't like the church. I just don't like the people at church. They're full of hypocrites. What you are saying to me is the people that I pastor, the people that I oversee, the people God has called me as their shepherd, you, to me, you're calling them a skank. People don't, we don't realize that, right? We don't look at that that way, and we think, oh, well, you know, you, you can separate. No, there is no separation between love for Jesus and commitment to his church. He, the church, is his bride. Now, if you look between verses 5 and 6, in Acts 26, when, when Paul recounts his um, testimony, which he does three times in the book of Acts, if you could just slot in there, uh, Acts 26, 12 through 8, because as, as Jesus is questioning, uh, you know, why are you persecuting me? Jesus inserts, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, what is a goad? Because it's not a word that we use, right? Unless you're a farmer, and a farmer way back when. So a goad was a long stick that had a pointed end, so when the farmers took their oxen and uh, they yoked them together and they were plowing field, if the oxen was a little con- you know, cantankerous that day, did not want to move, the, the stick was poking the back of the leg large. Uh, than letting somebody else be in charge of my life. And usually things are good at first because, after all, sin is fun. And if you don't think sin is fun, then you're not doing it right, okay? Uh, so it was, yeah, it was. It was a good time. I had a, I had a wonderful time sinning. However, as with all sin, eventually there comes consequences. The consequences are very painful. And if you're not careful, the consequences can last a lifetime, not just in the moment. And so when you wake up and you realize you're in a string of broken relationships and you're unhappy and you've never met the right guy, maybe if I move to a new city and you realize you just don't realize you've been blind and you've been blind to all this and you didn't know the truth, you didn't understand about God, Jesus, any of that stuff, and so you're just walking in your blindness. The second form is religious blindness. You can think, you know, I can be good enough to earn God's approval if I just try harder, if I just do better. But there are two things that you have to understand is that when you uh, are blind, you're also spiritually dead. So that means you cannot bring life into your spiritual deadness. Because sin brings death. The wages of sin is death. And so Adam and Eve, the moment they died, they died spiritually in their died immediately in their spirit because God said on the day that you sin, you will surely die. They died progressively in their soul, their mind, will, and emotions, and ultimately in their body. This is the realm of humanity in which we still live. So the result was uh, that God's law to love and to serve and to glorify him became very unnatural to us. We resisted that. And secondly, we, we were naked, right? We, nakedness speaks of shame and guilt. We're so filled with shame, so filled with guilt, so nobody can live a life filled with shame and guilt 
uh, all the time. So we have to do one of two things. We do what Adam and Eve did. We either justify our sin or we blame somebody else. As long as I can justify it, blame somebody else, I don't have to take responsibility for it. Therefore, it is a temporary measure by which I alleviate myself from the shame and guilt. And so then I have to, uh, but but it doesn't work. That's the problem. It just doesn't work, and it's just still there. But So I have to make it look good on the outside so nobody really knows what goes on the inside. That is the problem with Anthony Bourdain and Kate Spade. To look at the outside, you would have never known what was happening inside of them, that they had come to this point in their life of absolute hopelessness in which they would ultimately take their own lives. Or we turn to good works in order to prove ourselves how good we are. And so we live like Paul did, right? So we have this comparison chart, and we teach this early on with kids, right? So we put charts up in the Sunday school room. We have little gold stars, and I'm, I'm all for, you know, motivating kids, but sometimes, you know, you're not careful. Even as a child, you get a little prideful. You think, man, I've got five gold stars. Ain't nobody else got that many. Uh, man, I got a gold star for being here, bringing my Bible, reading my Bible, and all those things. And so comparison is great, uh, but it can, uh, uh, the comparison can lead to pride, but it can also lead to shame. Because if I'm on the, you know, the opposite side of that scale, now all of a sudden I'm not measuring up. And I feel bad about myself. And so usually this comes in cycles uh, because this despair leads to jealousy and jealousy turns to hatred and fear and hatred and fear to violence. And that's why some of the most miserable people you ever meet are believers or religious people. Saul was absolutely miserable. In fact, the more that he chased after the way, the matter he became. So how do you know when your eyes are open? How do you know? Paul was really good, uh, but he was not very nice. And so sometimes when you talk to people who are atheists about the problem that religion causes, I just say, you're exactly right. Religion causes a lot of problems. Because the problem is religion, not relationship. It's a different thing, right? It's two different things. So how do I know when I've experienced Christ and and all of a sudden I'm no longer walking in religion. I'm no longer strapped to religion. I'm no longer trying to earn God's favor. It's because number one is there's a sense of wonder instead of entitlement and pride which says, well, of course God accepts me. I'm better than anyone else. Paul was filled with this, right? He was at first and then when he meets Christ he's filled with wonder saying, you know what? I I can't believe God saved me. I can't believe what God has brought me from. I was the chief of sinners, and God has saved me. He has changed me. I'll never get over this wondrous grace of our heavenly Father through his son, Jesus Christ. I mean, he was was just like fired up on the other side, right? Transparency instead of hypocrisy. Paul would, from this point, constantly admit his failings. The law tells me not to covet. I covet. He doesn't want people admiring his flesh. He wants people running after the Savior and graciousness and generosity instead of hatred and pride. No one is too hard toward the gospel that God cannot break them. And when I think about Saul and his encounter with God and how God just like arrests him and and just removes this blindness that was so there, And just absolutely transforms the way he saw everything, himself and God and life and the questions that he had. I always think back to when I was in karate. 
All right, so when I was 15 years old, um, I took karate. I, I don't remember how many years, but when I was 15 years old, I was fighting in the um, state tournament here in Ohio up in Cleveland. And so uh, I was in Taekwondo. My sensei was uh, George Anarino, and George Anarino was a fourth-degree black belt. Uh, he was only about 5'9", but a really stocky guy. He was also a champion Golden Glove boxer. And so uh, I'd taken, you know, um, karate lessons from him as well as some of my friends. And so when you're 15 years old and you're in the state championship, it does not matter what the degree belt you have, whether you're white, green, brown, or black. It doesn't matter because at that age group, you're all lumped together. All right, so, so this is my scenario. I go up, you know, that's what I, all I trained for was competition fighting. So I get up to Cleveland, and uh, they call out the first guy in my match. He's like six foot. Do I look six foot? No. I'm thinking, I'm done. It, it's over with. It's history. Uh, but I fought the guy, took him out. And so then I went to the second round and third round, fourth round, and finally I was... I was fighting uh, for um, you know, anywhere between, so it was the last two matches, and so the kid who stepped out was a black belt. He was a second-degree black belt, and uh, he took me down. And I gave him a tussle, but he took me out. So I lost that fight, came in third in the state that year. So, um, so my sensei, uh, George, said, you know what, we're going to sharpen your skills. He says, uh, so um, we're going to spar together. Now, you know, I was thinking to myself, you know what? Uh, I, I thought I did pretty good in the state. And so I got a little prideful, a little cocky, and jumped in there on the mat with, against my sensei. And fourth-degree black belt, golden gloves, boxer, didn't matter. I just a little puffed up. My friends, you know, hey, you can do this. Let me tell you, uh, when, when the fight started, that was the longest 10-second fight I'd ever been a part of, man. It's like... He threw a roundhouse, kicked me in the side, knocked me halfway across the mat. Now, back in my day and time, there was no safety equipment, okay? You didn't wear a helmet. There were no sissy gloves. There were no uh, shin guards or any of that stuff. In fact, in fighting, in tournaments, you could hit a guy in the face. You just couldn't draw blood. So you just made sure you didn't hit him in the nose or in the lip because those are two places going to draw blood very quickly because you're immediately disqualified. So I got back up, and he says, come on, we're not done. And so I wasn't quite so prideful by this time. And so I come at him again. And uh, so that was the, last, that was the longest two-second fight. Uh, he punched me, uh, like, right in here on the side of my chest. Uh, again, I, I was down. I was out. See, this is kind of the way I think that God was, that Jesus was with Saul when he met him on that road to Damascus. It's like, man, I'm going to take you down, and I'm going to take you out because I have a plan, and I have a purpose for your life. Do you know that God has a plan and a purpose for every single human being's life? So here's the third reason why you don't ever want to write somebody off as being too far from the gospel is that because their past does not disqualify them from God's grace. Amen. Right? Saul was a persecutor. He was a murderer. Right? Any of you been out murdering people? That yet Saul was not beyond the realm of God's grace. In fact, he was so arrested by God's grace, he spent the remaining years of his life writing about it. 
over and over again about the amazement of God's grace. He says, I, Saul, you are my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles. I mean, think about poor Ananias who had to come up here and confront Saul. Uh, he's thinking, God, you got to be kidding me. Uh, you, you know this guy's coming to get us, right? We're hiding in basements here. Here's what I want you to see. In the testimony of K. Arthur, who is the founder of the Precepts Ministry, who developed the inductive Bible study method that is now used in over 120 countries around the world. If you've ever heard her testimony, she shares about how she, before she found Jesus, was looking for love in all the wrong places and went from relationship to relationship to relationship to man to man to man, and she literally called herself a harlot. But then all of a sudden, Jesus arrested her heart. She experienced the grace of God, and she talked about the removal of that banner off of her life. And so for some people... uh, you think that, man, there's no way God could use this person. They could be an instrument of God because, you know, they've done this, 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 and this. They are just too far gone. No, they're not. And maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're thinking to yourself, you know what? I don't look at myself as an instrument of God's use because I've done this, this, and this, and I'm still doing Listen, you need to take that banner off of you because that's not what God says about you. It might be what your parents said about you. It might be what a neighbor or a coworker said about you, but it's not the description that God gave you. You are a new creation in Christ. The old is gone. The new has come. That's who you are in Jesus. You are an instrument for God's use. And so Paul would save himself. Again, you know, I'm a chief of sinners. If God can erect that banner over his life that moved him from being a chief of sinners to this chosen instrument, take the gospel to the Gentile world. And by the way, you and I are sitting here because of his obedience to that call in his life. It's what God wants to do for you. Paul said, In Philippians 3.10, I want to know Christ, the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship and the sharing of his suffering. Notice what it says in verse 16. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Why did Paul suffer? Paul was suffering because he was extending the gospel of Christ to the known world. If you read 1 Corinthians 12 and some of the hit list, you know, that, that is on there about being beaten, left for dead, all of those things... Listen, I know for some people, this is like a stumbling block. Well, how, why would God make me suffer for, the, for his namesake? Because sometimes if we're really willing to take the gospel to the people around us, we may suffer in various ways, probably not to the extent the apostle Paul suffered. But I can assure you that the moment he was beheaded and he entered as a martyr and he entered and stepped into his glorious reward, that he probably did not stand there beside Jesus and complain about the fact that he has suffered in such a way. I think Paul looked at it as a badge of honor because, again, he was so taken back and amazed by God's grace on his life. Don't let that throw you. The gospel has never promised to make your life easier, just better. Here's the fourth reason. Um, It's because a person's past does not disqualify them from future usefulness. I don't have time to read all the verses in in, uh, the rest of this uh, chapter pertaining to Saul, uh, but we'll just kind of hit some of the highlights. It says that Saul, you know, Ananias comes, lays hands on him. He um, 
he is baptized by Christ, you know, in the Holy Spirit, into the body of Christ, and sealed and dwelt by the Spirit. And it says he was filled with the Holy Spirit, which is an empowerment for the service that he's called to. And immediately something like the scales fall from his eyes. He is baptized. And so Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once, watch this, at once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. Radical transformation, right? Radical conversion. He's out there preaching. Listen, he's going to the very places that he had been, you know, Saul the antagonist. Now he's Paul the apologist. He, he's coming and sharing Jesus with people around him. And they're not going to take this very well. And all those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't this the guy who wreaked havoc in Jerusalem? And yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. Verse 20, after many days had gone by. So in between verse 22 and 23, put Galatians 1, 15 through 18, because there is a gap there of three years. Uh, Saul goes to Arabia, not Saudi Arabia, but it's a, another part of a uh, peninsula where he spends three years in the desert. God's preparing him for the calling upon his life. Here's what I want you to see. When Saul gave his life to Jesus and he becomes Paul, uh, is that, look, when you get saved, you need other people to help you to grow and to mature in your Christian life. But on the same token, there are some things people cannot do for you in your preparation that you must do for yourself just between you and God. And so he, a lot of people helped him out in the beginning, you know, who brought the food to him and, and did the baptizing and regaining his strength. And, and so people are going to help him along the way, but there was that time with God after many days. Three years goes by. Jews conspired to kill him, but Saul learned that their plan day and night, and, and, you know, they kept close watch on the city gates, but his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket. Can you imagine that? You're, it's, like, it's like a garbage basket. They're putting you over the wall. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples. Hey, nobody wants anything to do with him. It's like the Trojan horse. Hey, he's going he's, he's gonna to fool us, get in the midst of us, and then he's going to arrest us and destroy us. Only Barnabas, we'll talk about later, the son of encouragement, brings him to the disciples and say, look, he's legit. He's had a legitimate conversion experience. And so Saul stays with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem. He stays for about 15 days. He talked and debated with the Grecian Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the brothers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and took him off to Tarsus. Now you can put Galatians 2.1. So watch this. So he stays in Tarsus for 14 years. And I love what it says after that. When he's gone off the scene, there's peace in the city, man. It's like, oh, man, Saul's out of here. Like, about time. Here's what I want you to see. Preparation. Preparation. This is God's, uh, this is the way God, God acts, right? He spent 40 years preparing Moses for his calling. He spent 15 years preparing David for his calling. He spent 20 years preparing Joseph for his calling. He, he takes 17 years to prepare Saul for his calling. Don't waste your white space. Because in preparation, there has to be time when it's just you and God. Listen, nobody can pray for you. Nobody can read God's word for you. There needs to be time in which it's just you and the Father, right? And so you're, you're praying, you're reading God's word, you're listening to the Spirit, and you're acting upon what God is building in your life. Nobody can, can mature you but you. 
People can help you. They can teach you. We have wonderful teachers in our small groups. Uh, we teach in here every week on Sunday. But listen, we, we can sit around a table and we can talk and talk and talk and prepare and prepare and prepare and never step out in doing what we've been talking about and preparing ourselves for. That's kind of like, you know, I'm going to get my driver's license, so I go through all the study material, I take all the tests, I do it, I do it, I do it, but I'm, I'm afraid to get in the car with an officer and go out and do my driving test. Remember this, and this is the last thing I've got on your outline. The salvation of a soul is the miracle of a moment. The manufacture of a saint is the task of a lifetime. There has to be... This is why we are a church. We need each other. And we learn from one another. And we support one another. We encourage one another. We pray for one another. But there has to be that alone time, that white space with you and God. Your kind of your desert time. Whatever you want to call it, however you want to label it. And you need to allow God to prepare your heart and prepare your soul and your mind. And all these things that he wants to do in you and through you. But then once he's doing in you and through you, you've got to step out by faith and actually put it into practice. It does not matter how much we know about the gospel. It does not matter how powerful the gospel is. If we're not out there sharing it and we're not out there doing it, it's not helping anybody. Amen. Nothing in Saul's past was limiting his future. No failure, no stubbornness, no willful disobedience, no horrific evil. Because God had forgiven him and washed him clean in the blood of Jesus. My prayer is that you and I will never again look at a person and write them off as being too far gone for the gospel. The gospel is not failing for a lack of power. The gospel is failing for a lack of belief that God can penetrate the human heart. And we're just not sharing it. I had lunch with one of the guys out of my class this morning and or this week, and I said, you know what? It's amazing to me. It's, it's amazing to me how many people get healed that I pray for because I pray for healing. <laughs> as opposed to when I didn't pray for healing. It's amazing to me how many people actually get saved because you actually share the gospel, as opposed to not sharing the gospel, and you don't see anybody get saved. It's not a lack of power, of sozo power of the gospel to save, heal, and deliver. It's just our failure to actually act upon it, to equip ourselves and to act upon it. So next Sunday morning, we're going to talk about this equipping process. How do I do that? How does God use me to dispense the gospel in such a powerful, powerful way? Because it's my responsibility, it's your responsibility, and then we've got to have boots on the ground, we've got to hit the streets, we've got to be sharing, we've got to be talking, we've got to be letting God take us to those divine gospel appointments that he wants us to experience. Let's bow our heads together. Now, if you're here this morning and maybe God has just been goading you for a long time now. Maybe it's through um, the relationship that you have with a, with a believer. And they've just been so patient with you and so kind. And 
have expressed the love of Christ and you're wondering why and what are their true motives and, and all these things. And yet God is saying, because I, I'm, I'm extending my love to you through them. Maybe it's about life's questions that you have. Um, maybe, maybe it's a painful event in your life that you, you have questions about and you're wondering. And, and so God just using these things it's in order to, to let you know that he is pursuing. He is there. He is ready. He is waiting. He longs more than anything else is to have this love relationship with you. And maybe you're here this morning and you've just heard it's, it's all about Jesus. It's about the gospel. It's the good news. God wants to forgive you of your sin. He wants to give you a brand new slate, a new beginning, a fresh start. He wants to pour his grace out upon you, not giving you what you deserve, but, but what you don't deserve. He wants you to experience his love and his blessing and his kindness and gentleness. And let that arrest your heart. You'll never be the same. That God would remove your shame and your guilt because Jesus took that for you. He stood in your place. He died in your place. And he absorbed, he drank the cup of God's wrath against you so that you might be set free from that impending doom. And so it's just a matter of you responding to the Father's call, opening up your heart to him, believing that Jesus is the Son of God who came and died, was buried and was resurrected on your behalf. And he wants this relationship. He wants to bring healing in your, in your life. He wants to heal those the brokenness that is within you. He wants to heal your mind, the control center of your life that sometimes plagues you. And maybe you're at the end of your rope and you're to a point of hopelessness. Listen, Jesus is hope. He is the ultimate hope. And so God can take that which is dead inside of you and bring it back to life again. And clothe you in the righteousness of Jesus so that not only does God look at you differently, you look at yourself differently. You are a chosen instrument of God and he loves you immensely. So right now, where you are, you can just breathe that breath of prayer. Jesus, oh Lord Jesus, I know that you love me and you died for me and I'm asking you to be my Savior, Lord, this morning. And I'm opening up my heart to you. I'm giving you my life. I want to follow you all the days that I have here on this planet. So, Father, I just pray for anyone who's just sensing that right now, maybe prayed that prayer. God, may your spirit confirm to theirs. They become a child of yours. Lord, I pray that we as your followers of Jesus Christ, that, Lord, once again, you would build a passion and a fire in our hearts for those who are outside of your kingdom, that we would go to any means necessary 
to take the gospel, the good news, to everyone that we have influence over, wherever they cross our pathway. May we rise up and share the hope that is within us. Lord, we pray for healing. We pray for deliverance. We pray for those outside your kingdom. May the light arrest their blindness. May hope fill their hearts. May the Spirit breathe life into them as they embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we pray that, Father, during this week of camp. We pray this, Father, during the week of vacation Bible school. We pray this, Father, over our lives on a daily basis. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together. So I have here at the front pamphlets if you'd like to grab one. We pray to receive Christ. I'd love to pray with you, just speak with you, whether during this time of singing or a little later on. But uh, church, is, is, is the Lord amazing? Has he been amazing in your life? All right. So let's share that amazement with others.
amen. Um, I want to make a little executive decision. Uh, originally, we were scheduled to have a, uh, a business meeting, a brief one. I'd like to postpone that a week if nobody objects to that. Um, and I'll, I'll tell you why. In a one call, because there's something, there's a decision I think we need to make as a church, and uh, I want you praying about it before you make that decision. Okay, so I don't want to spring it on you and say, oh, let's make a decision right now. Let's pray about, let's seek God's heart. I'll put the one call out on Monday. It'll give you all week long to be praying and, you know, just seeking God and his heart and his voice over this. Um, we, we had nothing else other than that one thing anyways today. But I do want to encourage you as a church to pray for our national convention. It's meeting this week in Dallas. Um, this week is going to be pivotal for our convention in setting its future direction. So um, God, God has some incredible plans for our convention and for our church. And so I just want to be very careful in, in how we approach that. So is that okay with everybody? Or do you rather? Okay, great, wonderful. Um, hey, love you. Have a great week. And uh, we look forward to seeing you next Sunday. God bless you. Give somebody a handshake, a hug before you leave. Let them know that you love them. You're glad to be here with them.